Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy to have Brother Don Pell with us this morning, and he's going to bring us the message that God has laid on his heart. Brother Don, please. Good morning. This morning we were at the cross, and I'm going to take you back to the cross. I'd like to read some verses that were mentioned, alluded to, by our brother this morning. This particular verse of scripture that I have in mind uh, give us one little insight into one of the things, among others, that happened at the cross of Calvary. As you know, it's recorded in each of the Gospels, but this particular incident we find in Luke's Gospel, chapter number 23. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 23. And I'm going to begin reading from verse number 32. I'm using the New King's translation. New King James, that is. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and begin reading at verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, malefactors, I believe one translation puts it, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they parted the garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here we have it. Two men referred to as criminals or malefactors hanging on either side of Jesus on the cross with Jesus in the midst. And that's an important truth that we find in Scripture. That's his rightful place in the midst. We expected him to be in our midst this morning because he has promised where just two or three are gathered together in his name, 
the place where he has caused to place his name, he would be there in the midst of them. You remember another occasion when the disciples were frightened and bewildered and Jesus appears to them and we find him again in the midst and he says to them, peace be unto you. You remember when he was a boy, the parents of Jesus wondered where he was and they went back to the temple and we find him where? In the midst of the doctors of the law hearing and asking him questions. We find him in the midst of the great congregation Here's what the writer of Hebrews writes, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And at a coming day, he's going to be in the midst. And I looked, and behold, in the what? Midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus in the midst. Now, two criminals, and they represent to us two classes of people. And there are only two. There are those who reject Christ. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. There are those who receive him and accept him. Lord, remember me. There's nobody can sit on the fence in this issue. One, or, one of two things, accept or reject. And the Lord himself said that's the way it was going to be. Here's what he said. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now it occurred to me as I was reading this incident that we have the basic elements of the doctrine of salvation contained in just these few verses and just these few words. The doctrine of salvation. And I managed to find seven of these. You know you have to have seven to have a complete message. And I found seven. Now here they are. The elements of the doctrine of salvation. How to be saved. First of all, there's recognition. Secondly, conviction, then repentance, confession, forgiveness, assurance, and witness. And I'd like to explore each of these things this morning. Recognition. First of all, it's the fear of God. Remember what he asked. Do you not even fear God? Now, Mr. Schofield reminds us but the fear of the Lord uh, reminds us that it's reverential trust. The psalmist said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon agrees with the psalmist, and he writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But you see, it really goes even back behind that because the fear of the Lord really is a recognition that there is a God that he actually exists, and you are responsible to him. The psalmist says, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. 
And you ask yourself, well, why does a fool believe or want to believe that there is no God? And the answer, I think, is simply this. If there is no God, he has no one to whom he's accountable. Everything is relative. If it feels good, do it, because there is no absolute set of principles. There's no being that sets a standard. He creates his own God. He creates his own gods. And he does that in order to satisfy his own selfish, lustful desires. The psalmist declares their gods are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Man creates his own gods. He can direct his own gods. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them, says the psalmist. You see, the criminal who said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us, he could have easily rationalized that he wasn't even worthy of death. Maybe the other guy had it coming to him. Maybe the other guy, if he were a murderer, deserved to be murdered, he could rationalize. If he were a thief, he could rationalize, well, you know what? He didn't deserve to keep it because he didn't take good care of it. He didn't look after it. I spent some time overseas among some folks who had that uh, basic theology or basic feeling, philosophy rather. If you weren't careful to watch for your own things, you didn't deserve to have it. I remember one time when we went to watch a baseball game in Detroit, Tiger Stadium. Back then, I think it still is probably, was in a neighborhood that was rather dangerous. And we were looking for parking, and parking was really hard to find, and we decided to park alongside of the street. And as we were getting out of our car, a policeman came up, and he says, are you folks planning to leave your car here? And we said, yes. He says, well, don't do that, because if you do, it won't be there when you get back. You see, if you don't watch over your car, you don't deserve to keep your car. There are no absolutes, you know. Finders, keepers, losers, what? Right, weepers. Well, that was this man. The believing criminal recognized God as the judge. You think about that? You know what he said? You are under the same condemnation. Abraham referred to God as what? The judge of all the earth. Solomon wrote, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and every work. And he not only recognized that God was the judge, but he recognized him as the righteous judge. And we indeed what? Justly. We indeed justly. The righteous judge. Remember what Abraham asked God? Shall the judge of all the earth, what? Do the right thing? Shall he do the right thing? Jesus himself regarded his death as coming from a righteous judge. Here's what Peter wrote. Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges what? Righteously. The righteous judge. Now that leads us to conviction. This thief saw himself as a guilty sinner worthy of condemnation. He said, we receive the due reward of our deeds. And the reaction and the words of this unnamed, untaught criminal 
proved to us, I believe, that the Spirit of God was working in his very heart. He didn't rationalize away his, his actions as mistakes or misunderstandings. He agreed with God that he had sinned and that he absolutely could not help himself. Later on, Jesus promised the disciples that the same Holy Spirit who likely spoke to this thief, or this criminal rather, will come someday to planet Earth and he will do a work of conviction. He will convict, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You see, he was also convinced that not only was he a sinner, but he recognized Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. Here's how Peter expressed it. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just Christ, for the unjust, the criminal, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Through the eyes of faith, he looked ahead. This is why I believe the Holy Spirit was working in his heart. He looked ahead and he saw a resurrected Jesus. Here's what he said. When you, what? Come into your kingdom. Even the truth of the resurrection had dawned on the disciples who very carefully walked and been taught by the Lord himself. That leads us now to repentance. And repentance may be associated with grief and sorrow and regret. But repentance really simply means to change direction. You are going in one direction and you change and go in the other direction. When we read in the scripture that God repented of something, all it simply means is God changed direction. And this is exactly what happened to this thief. Repentance was first, remember, preached to Israel by John the Baptist. Remember his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then later on, repentance is preached by Jesus himself. We read from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repentance was an integral part of the gospel message preached by the apostles. Here's what Peter said to the Jews. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, how do we know that this man actually repented? Notice how he addresses Jesus. Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's changing direction. He's changing from being a criminal to being a follower of Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. Lack of repentance often is an early indication to determine the difference between one who professes, merely professes salvation, but does not actually possess salvation. A change in direction. And his repentance was confirmed by the Lord himself. God, God the Son knew he had truly repented. Today, 
I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we find that in a verse of scripture that's near and dear to me because it was instrumental in my coming to the Lord. In the book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the what? Lord Jesus. Oh, that's repentance, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Not just mere confession, but Jesus as Lord. That's repentance. And believe in your heart. That's faith. That God has raised him from the dead, you will be with him in paradise someday. You will be saved. Now, confession. First of all, the believing criminal rebuked the unbelieving criminal. He openly separated himself from the ungodly. He confessed that he had feared God when he said, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? This rebuke and subsequent, uh, subsequent rather, actions prove that he did endear, indeed rather fear God. Secondly, he simply confessed his sins. What did he say? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. And confession is an integral part of salvation. The verse following Romans 10 and 9, verse number 10, puts it like this. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth, what? Confession is made unto salvation. Now, those of us who have been saved from the penalty of sin are still not saved from the presence of sin, and confession needs to become part of our daily life. John puts it this way, if we confess our sins, what happens? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, an integral part of salvation, confession, a part of a believer's life. Now we come to forgiveness. Ah, don't you love forgiveness? The criminal had a firsthand experience with Jesus' willingness to forgive. Remember earlier, he has said, Father, forgive them, and I think he was referring to the nation of Israel, for they do not know what they do. Here is a man who can forgive. Here is a man who will forgive. Here Jesus was asking forgiveness of those who, according to Peter, killed the prince of life through ignorance. Peter said, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. Now the criminal is asking for forgiveness for something he absolutely knew. It wasn't ignorance. He knew that he had done wrong. Lord, Lord, remember me. And forgiveness, is it not, an integral part of salvation. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. 
wonder if anybody you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian, a preacher, during the time that Hitler came to rise in Nazi Germany. He uh, became a martyr because he also was a spy, or at least accused of being a spy, by the Germans, and he was subsequently killed. But someone asked him back in 1943 how it was possible, and maybe you've wondered about this, how was it possible for the church to sit back and allow Hitler to seize absolute power? How come I didn't hear of any real movements in the church rising up and saying, enough is enough, you can't do this to God's chosen people? And you know what his answer was? It was the teaching of cheap grace. It was the teaching of cheap grace. And he goes on, he says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why Amazing Grace is so popular. It's the grace that the world sees apart from repentance apart from the cross, apart from Jesus Christ. Cheap grace. They should say um, cheap grace, right? <laughs> okay, assurance. Assurance. Ah, I love assurance. That's a part of salvation too, you know. Assurance. Spoken from the lips of Jesus himself. Don't you love this? Assuredly. You don't have to fret anymore, Mr. Criminal. Assuredly. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you have that insurance today? Is it part of your salvation? Is it part of the doctrine of salvation? You know, since Jesus died, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and is seated at God the Father's right hand, he provides the very same words of assurance to us that he did to that criminal back there on the cross. To the Romans, Paul says, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. May not today, but someday you will be with him in paradise. And John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. Wow, don't you love that? That you may know that you have eternal life. Interestingly enough, unlike us, the devil had no opportunity to cause the criminal to doubt. He didn't have to fight that battle. But Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And James says, Submit yourself to God. Resist that devil and he will go away. He will flee from you. Each time we break the bread and drink the cup, we do in fond remembrance of him. Remember the thief said, Lord, remember me. He remembered us on the cross. Therefore, we remember him, the Christ of the cross. There's a song that maybe you've heard. When he was on the cross, 
I was what? On his mind. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, he's also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? How is he able to do that? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He constantly remembers us. Assurance. Now lastly, witness. You see, the dying thief still speaks today. He is still a witness today. And he tells us a couple really interesting things for our understanding. First of all, he says to us, salvation is by grace through faith and faith alone, not of works. No other requirements. Supposing the Lord had turned to the thief and said, you know, it's a shame you weren't around when John and I preached repentance and people were baptized. You know, it's a shame you didn't get baptized and you know that if you don't get baptized, Mr. Criminal, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Now, those who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation will say, well, that was before the cross. But let me tell you something. That's true. It was before the cross. It was at the cross. You see? It, this doctrine of salvation took place at the cross, at the very place where how to get saved is explained to us. And baptism wasn't part of it. Neither was works part of it. Neither was church membership part of it. The thief had no opportunity. No works were required and no works were offered. He had no opportunity to prevere good works. And we know what Paul says about that, don't we? To the Ephesians 4, by grace are you saved, what? Through faith. Not of yourselves. What is it? It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should. What could the criminal boast about? Oh, I just happened to be there. <laughs> he certainly was. Oh, one other thing that he's preaching to us today. No one. No one, not even a criminal, is beyond God's reach for salvation. If he can save the criminal, he can save Don Pell. If he can save the criminal, he can save Ed Scott. If he can save the criminal, he can save anyone and everything, whosoever will. Now, it's interesting. He was saved so as by fire, as the expression goes. So as by fire. And he missed something, didn't he? He missed some things. Yes, he's in glory with the Lord. But he missed some really great things. For instance, he missed the opportunity to be a co-worker with God. He missed that opportunity. Think about that. We have this opportunity now, having been saved, we could be his co-workers. We've got some, some useful things to do. The thief cannot claim any, or this dying criminal cannot claim any of those things. 
Remember how Paul puts it to the Corinthians? He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. And the other thing he missed, he missed the opportunity to glorify God in his body. Oh, yes, he does glorify him from this incident, but he never had that opportunity of demonstrating that he had been saved, not by works, but he had been saved unto good works, which is a privilege for us this morning. Here you have it. The doctrine of salvation. Recognition. Conviction. Repentance. Confession, forgiveness, assurance, and witness. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful for this incident at the cross that reminds us how to get saved. Perhaps the very first gospel message that was ever preached there at the cross in so few and simple words. And we rejoice in the fact that we were saved by grace through faith. And we recognize that even if he can save a criminal, certainly he can save those of us who were dead in trespasses and in sins. We just pray, Father, that these thoughts might have been a real encouragement to those gathered here this morning. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.